I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Pedro Parra, the soil specialist on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I am very well. Very well. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. So you are a man who studies terroir in different areas of the world. You're based in Chile, though. I am based on Chile. I move a lot, but uh, I'm based today on Chile. You started more in a different line of work. When I started, I started in, in France, not because I wanted I want to move to France, and then life brings me to soil and, and wine. And I spent a very long six years there. So I, I learned a lot from people in France. And did, then I came back to Chile. How did it all come about? What happened? I just went to France, you know, to Montpellier, because I wanted to be a jazz saxophonist. And then I went to the Michel Petrucciani school, and I realized that I was not very good. Very good in Chile as a jazz player. Uh, very bad in France. That means horrible in New York. <laughs> and, and then, but I, my grant was for agronomy, for, for, you know, precision agriculture at the moment. That was 97 and 98. Because there's an agronomy school in yes, Montpellier I, as well. I am, yes. So, but I didn't want to do work on the agronomy. I did really wanted to go to, uh, to music. And then I need to, to do something with my life. And then so I moved to, I really started to, 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 to study on agronomy in Montpellier. I stayed two years there. And then I went to the Paris Center in Grignon and they were specialized on terroir. And I was not at the moment, but I was in the same office with somebody who was in terroir. So they invite me very often to taste wines. Uh, and at the moment, they were working on, on the Côte d'Iron, you know, Vaquerras and Chateau de Pape, so Syrah, Grenache. And I really liked the energy of the people. And when I came back to Chile, I was trying to be a professor, a teacher, a researcher, something like that. And uh, I was trying to start something about terroir because I really liked it, and, but it was not really the moment in Chile. It's 99, 2000. Nobody was, everybody was talking about Chardonnay, you know. Where's the bricks? Where's the bricks? <laughs> ab- ab- absolutely. So I tried to push, but I knew nobody in the wine industry. So I was like doing other kind of job, work. And then I got married. I got married, uh, happy married, and I was very poor at the moment. And I didn't get the job in the university because I was not a PhD. I was only a master's degree, which is great, but not enough to, to, to be professor. 
So I got another grant now to go back to France and to Paris, to the center, and then to make my PhD on terroir. So I was pretty lucky, I think. That was 2001. And it really hasn't just been terroir. It's been how terroir affects the taste of wine in a glass. Uh, for me, a lot. I mean, I think that there's two ways to, you can look at that. People who really like wines, but they don't taste really the wines. So for them, maybe terroir is nothing or just a funny name or a beautiful name. But for people who really are under the wine in, and who taste wines often and who move and buy wines, terroir is everything. So for me, in the beginning, you know, it was like a work for me. And then I fell little by little in love, passionate, and I collect wines because I love wines. And, and so little by little with my client for 14 years, taste, tasting and tasting, you start to, to, to find that, you know, the, the rocks really change completely the way that you taste in the paleo wines. And for you, it's not so much actual flavor, but more of a sensation, more of the mouthfeel. You know, flavors are very important in wine, but you can build flavors. You can blend, you can, it's something that uh, if you are very good on that, you can really work and create a flavor. And also flavors are very subjective. I mean, what is good, what is not good is very, you cannot say what is good. And uh, in terms of the tannins, it is, it is always yes or no. You have it, or you cannot build that on the, on the cellar. You can try to do that, but you, if you want to have this kind of chalky tannins and you're not planting in limestone, you will never have that. No barrique, no winemaker, famous winemaker, whatever. So for me, the truth is always on the tannins, on, not on the flavors. Of course, when I got beautiful flavors, I like that. But uh, my focus, my work, and my wines are always more oriented to, to the pele, to the tannins. And you did get some winery clients, and how did that come about? I started, you know, when I came back to Chile, I started to work in the university, and then my PhD was paid by Conchitoro for the top QVA, his name is Tom Melchor. And then one friend who was a winemaker in the university asked me to work with him. Then he became the most important Chilean winemaker. And who's that? Marcelo Retamal from De Martino. Mm -hmm. But at the moment he was very young like me. So, and we start to work together, you know, uh, and we, we started a single vineyard program for the De Martino winery, who became one of the most successful project in South America for wines, that was 2004. And then, you know, one friend from Marcelo, who at the moment was not very well known, from a winery, very new winery, Matetic, mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. today is very well known. The and EQ wines. Right? EQ wines. Yeah. So he phoned me because he wanted to learn more about granite. So I started to work with him at Matetic. And then Aurelio Montes from Montes and then Casalado. It's little by little. So in 2006, my life was completely changed. I was no longer in the university. And I was doing that, this kind of consultant work. So not knowing how to do it. Just, uh, you know, providing what I learned in France and little by little, you know, improving my view, my palette and the way that I try to communicate to the owner is the most difficult part to explain. You had trouble finding parallels in language that could that work for you to explain what was going on in, under the e, ground. You know, when you are in the new world and you talk about chalkitanes uh, or cheese or whatever or, or minerality, it's difficult because people don't know what it is. So I spent a lot of time, I would say many years, trying to communicate better with my clients. And then I realized that was the best way was to buy wines from places and then go to the restaurant and taste with them. And they, this is minerality. 
and then trying to explain them that if you, they want to reach a market like New York, they need to go to something more risky than what we're doing today. So the psychological part of the war was always the most difficult part for me. The technical one, you know, go to the soil, see the roots, the fractures is, is something that you learn. But to, to, to convince somebody to do that is always more, more complicated and take a lot of energy from you. But at the same time, you did take samples in a number of different places all around the world. Always. And because, you know, uh, from 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, I was only working in Chile. And, but uh, already working with different international winemakers. Then I met uh, a very well-known Italian winemaker, Alberto Antonini, who is a very good friend of mine today. And Alberto was working all around the world. So Alberto said to me, you know, I met many, many soil scientists, but they don't taste, they don't understand soil. They, I mean, they're very good on soil, they don't understand wine. And uh, your view is the opposite. You talk about wine and not about the soil. So he invited me to work in Mendoza in 2007. That was the first time for me that I was traveling. Yeah, so now you're in Argentina then. Yes, so, and nobody was talking terroir. It's the same history in Argentina. So we start to work really hard. I got some clients in the beginning there. And then Alberto bring me to Italy, to Canada, and, and you know, little by little, you start to make a very little, little wine world. So I have my friends in France, so France was always like my second home. But then, you know, because of the Italian connection, I moved to have uh, some friends in Italy, little by little, and now it's very often for me, both countries. I, I really like to do that. So when someone talks to you and says, you know, I'd like to be a client of yours, yes. this is the kind of wine that I'm interested in yeah. making, or this is the kind of soil yes. that I have in my vineyard, then what happens next? What's the next conversation? In, in fact, the first step is not this step. Is I want to work on terroir. I have no idea what I want to do. I don't really understand what do you do. And I really like this kind of wine. And do you think that we can do that in this kind of terroir I have? So... The first step is to go, to visit, to taste, to go dinner, to know the guy, to try to understand what he's looking for. And then the first uh, work in the vineyard will be one, two, three days for me, just looking at the geology. You know, I, I am not looking on the roots, not looking on the vines, the vigor of the vines, no. It's only knowing what geology he has in the vineyard. So if I get the, the connection between the geology and the wines, then I will be able to say to the client, I propose this kind of work for you. You know, uh, it's granite, so we can work on that, that, that. That will take three years. I will be here in the vineyard, uh, let's say, 20 days in the three years. And my idea is to make six, 10, 20 trials, vinification from micro terroir, not macro terroir. So my job is to find, you know, this special place in the vineyard. And then my job is to understand what will happen with this place and then work with the winemaker in order to make the wine from this special place. And in terms of that predictive power of what's going to happen from a place, yes. that's based on Experience. what you've seen in the old world. Yes. And, yes. And, and in the beginning, and it was maybe a mistake I made, everything that I was doing in Chile and Argentina was 100% based on, on what I learned on, on Europe, and mostly in Burgundy. And then little by little, I realized that uh, you cannot do that. So you cannot be too French in your mind. I am not French, so uh, I start to open my mind. And then I started to learn with my clients. So, you know, when you work one day, two days, but then 10 years is a lot, a lot. So uh, 
I am I think I am very good on granites and limestone and gravels and not so good on cheese so far because I have worked uh, only a few times on cheese. You cannot be good in everything, I think. So what would be for you the differences between those four things? Granite, limestone, gravels, and schist. I mean, how do those things differ? Oh, it's very important. It's very, you can be very different in the bad way. I mean, you know, uh, granites go very often to dry tannins. If you over-extract, if you make too much pumping overs, or if, if the year is dry, or your irrigation is not a good irrigation for the new wall, you go to rustic and dry, and nobody wants to have that. For limestone, uh, it's not the same. You don't go to rustic and dry tannins, but you lose the chalky tannins. So you, you become just another wine in the world. So, and uh, in the case of the gravels, in the gravels, the most difficult part is that, for me, you need to try to not produce too much fruit. You need to reach complexity. And complexity is very difficult, you know. Uh, the best terroir on gravels should be medoc, and they, they blend, and they blend not because they cannot make single vineyard. They blend because they need to have complexity. So these kind of gravels are a little less complex terroirs, so my job is to find a way to produce less fruity and more complex in terms of tannins and different flavors. And then volcanic, you, volcanic is always complicated because you can go very easy to bitter tannins, to short in the mouth, and you get metallic, bitter, green, so it's more difficult to work. So you need to have precision on, on, on your observations. So some places are more easy, other places are very difficult. And are there variations? Like, is there one kind of granite and then also five other kinds of granite? Are there huge. multiple kinds of limestone? How huge, should I understand huge. it? I, I mean, you can have, you know, a granite is like saying I'm, I'm Chilean, but there are many, many kinds of Chileans. So the genetic of the granite, it's super important. So, so far in my work in Chile, I found more than 23 or 24 kinds of granites. And then in other countries, it's the same. I mean, the granite's geology is the same all around the world. So you will change a lot if the quartz, who is the mineral in the granite, is bigger, coarse. You will have more vigor in the vines. The wine will be always more plush in the mouth, you can have too much alcohol, you can go too easy to black fruit and these kind of situations. So the shiny part of the granite, yes. the, the, the part that you look at and it's kind of the quartz part yes. the, like, that you know, catches your eye. Absolutely. The bigger that is, the more coarse the wine might be. The more, the more not coarse, the bigger the quartz it is, the more big will be. Okay. So you will be mineral, but a little more big. You know, if you're looking for a bomb mm -hmm, of granite, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, you need to, to, to look for that. And it's very important for me because if a client is, is looking for that, you know, I like granite, but I want to be big. He needs to have uh, this kind of granite, special granite with a lot of iron, very red soils, and the quartz very, very big. Because otherwise he's kind of arguing against the raw uh, materials. Uh, and you cannot change that. We cannot, you know, plant the vines in, in another place and we cannot change the size of the quartz. It's, you have it or you don't have it. It's like me at six foot five saying I'd like to be a gymnast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. You're never going to, to be able. So on the other hand, if the guy wants to really make a more elegant granite, very mineral, a little more sharp, you need to try to find very small quartz and maybe less iron, a touch of sand, and clearly not no clay or few clay in the soil. So, but that, you know, 
took me years to, to, to and years of trials. It's not science, it's just mistakes and observations. For limestone, it's the same. For schist, it's pretty much the same. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about limestone because I, you know, yeah, yeah. like Every, you, I like burgundy, yeah. you know, I like uh, Barolo. Of course. What should I know about limestone? I mean, how does limestone behave? Uh, you, there's a whole world about limestone because at the end, limestone is a common word to say uh, is some soil coming from the sea. But, you know, in the sea, you can have many, many kind of soils. So at the end, when, when the sea goes out and this piece of land get dry, you're going to have many different kind of lines. So Because there's different creatures that ab- live there. Absolutely. And they so, left different fossils. Absolutely. So, and different ages. So the limestone can be more harder, can be richer on clay, can be richer on silt. Uh, the fractures on the limestone can be very, very vertical, or, the, or, or you can decompose the limestone into a marn, what will be more a, clay. A, a marl, a, a, a mixture with clay. Absolutely. So, and then there is the slope. So the higher you are in the slope, you have better chance to have a very shallow and very hard limestone, which can be very good or very bad because you can go very easy to dry tunnels or you can have low vigor. So it's always depending where and always depending also, you know, the cepage. It's not the same for a Pinot Noir that will be with a Grenache in Gigondas or a Nebbiolo in, in Piemont. But, uh, and then there is the active limestone. So you can classify the limestone by active limestone because it's the, what, what the roots are going to take. And some places have high active limestone, other places very small, lacti- active, and other places is limestone, but not active. So you get nothing from the soil. So it's a whole world, the, 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 the limestone. And uh, I'm getting more and more surprised about that because in the beginning, you know, I had the idea that the, the classical limestone soil should be very shallow, then the rock very white and very hard. And then I started to, to look at some places in Barolo, looking at the pits, and it's completely different. Is that true? Yeah. It's, it's complete. I mean, if nobody told me that Barolo is so great, I would say the soil is horrible. But you are looking at the soil that is horrible, that is making fantastic wine. So that you need to change your point of view. The limestone from Barolo is so different from the limestone that you find in Burgundy, for example. Uh, in Barolo, it's very difficult to find the rock, you know, like a rock, to see the rock. It's more about silt and active limestone. And when the tree, so the soil is by far more fertile. If you go and you look on the, on the vineyard, you will see that the vineyard is super fertile. So a lot of people will say to you, not a good place for vines. But then you take the bottle and the bottle is fantastic. So, so it's, it's, it's always it's limestone, you know, it's a, it's a mystery, it's still a mystery. You cannot generalize on, 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 on limestone. Every place, one kind of limestone. And what I do understand is that some cepage don't go very well with limestone. For example, Cabernet Sauvignon really struggles with, uh, you know, you get big tannins from Cabernet and then you get the shulky tannins from the limestone and the Cabernet is rustic. So it's very difficult. If you go to, for example, to, to places like, like Poyac, for example, when you get the gravels and down you get the limestone, when you lose the gravels and you go to the limestone, the tannins are rustic and people don't accept that. Other, other grapes like Neviol, Sangiovese or, or Pinot Noir or whatever, they really are very, very oriented to limestone. 
And for me, even it's difficult to drink a Pinot Noir who is not, you know, planted on limestone. It's, it's difficult. I have the same problem. <laughs> it's a big problem. I, I Actually, where I really have it, though, is with Syrah. What I found is that I didn't really like Syrah. What I liked was granite yes. or sometimes sand. Yes. But it was more about that. It's a problem. It's a really a big problem because that 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 gives you very few options. Uh, Sonoma is not limestone. Oregon is not limestone. New Zealand is not limestone. So France is limestone. Maybe Austria is limestone. Uh, Chile, few places is limestone. Argentina, few places is limestone. So it's really when you're purist like that, it's it's difficult. But do it does empirically does it stand up for you? You know, to say like, well, you know, now that I really looked at it, pretty much everything I like is on that soil side and pretty much it, what I don't like is on it, that. It is. It is what makes me every year a more difficult guy when I'm buying, buying wines. I cannot buy my wines in Chile for, for sure. And then, and then I, I, you know, I was in Canada like, uh, no, I was in London like one month ago. And in the night we was tasting different wines and one wine was, was a wine from Volnay. A, a great premier crew from Volnay. And the next one was a Chambon Musigny, Amoureuse. And Volnay for me was a disaster. Not because the wine was not very good, it was very good. But it was big, black fruit, very mineral, but it's not what I like on Pinot Noir. So when, you, I, when I look at the mirror and I realize that I am reaching this point, I, I have a problem. I need to go to the psychologist or whatever. Because it's, for the Barolo, it's the same. When the Barolo... When the Barolo get too much to reach, uh, not in mineral, but in fruity, I have a problem immediately. And as a producer, I realize that a lot of people wants to buy this kind of wine. What made me... The fruity wine. The fruity wines. Yeah. So not the ones that you really like. The, yes. There's a market for the wines and that you And not the like. wine that I produce. So it's, I will never be able to make a big company because I will never find people that will be able to buy my wines because I really like the other side of the of the moon. But it sounds at the same time like when people come to you, what they're looking for is wines that are uh, distinctive, like yes. different wines yes. than what everyone else might be making in their area. They want to stand out more. It is, but in general, people who wants to me are bigger companies, so they produce fruity, and that's why it's so difficult for me to move the system to this kind of wines. But at the same time, if they want to reach this this you know special places like here to, to sell the wines, the higher prices wine. Like New York. The, like New York. It's the only way. So the problem is that you get it or you are not in. So that's the, the big problem. And some people is smart enough to, to understand that. Other people still think that with money they can reach, you know, success. And it's not like that. You know, today I was, when I was working, few places have Chilean wines, for example. Oh, I mean, it's very uncommon. It's, the restaurant level. At retail, you see it, but not at restaurants. Retail, you see some Chilean wines, but not the wines I would love to see. At restaurant, you see nothing. And it's not because the wines are not made in Chile to be in the restaurant. It's because we don't know how to sell our wines. It's about culture and wine. That's the most difficult part of the wine. So many, many of uh, my friends in Chile who really are producing, not from limestone, but from granites, very good granite wines, they are struggling a little because they, they are in the supermarket. They cannot find a way to, to go to the restaurant. That's the, the key point 
of, of the problem. And, and I come often to New York to try to put my wines in the restaurant. It's difficult. It's difficult because it's Chile in front. For Argentina, it's the same. It's Argentina in front. So, so it's not evident, but uh, I think it's little by little, you know. Suarland is doing it very well. I mean, more recently. Yes, more recently. Yeah, you know, but they, they start in a in a good way. So, like, uh, there's still, if I were to say Columella to yeah. a number of people in New York, they yes. wouldn't know what I was saying because it hasn't been distributed well. Yes, clearly. But like in the past. In the past. Now but it's that a new is, thing. You know, but, guys uh, like uh, even said you, Adibanejos are doing a great job together. The, all the group, you know. So you we need to find a way to be together in Chile to to do that. But the problem is that uh, always the guy who is doing a good job is very poor people without money to come. And, you know, if you ask uh, who can be a good importer for them, they don't know because they, they really are, they are not familiarized with, with what happens here. Uh, so, and the importers here, or the distributors here don't really know that some guys are doing a good job in Chile and Argentina. So it's always a, it's a communication problem. So the, somebody has to search, whether it's the producer or the somebody. And and I think we are starting. We are in the one percent of the work. We need to go to the next ninety nine percent. But if so much of the raw materials are about the soil type, it sounds like every every country gets dealt a certain deck of cards, right? Yes. It's like France then has a lot of limestone, right? Plenty. So what does Chile have? Like what Chile's granite. Chile, if you look at the geology, you, you can split it on three, volcanic. Um, volcanic, you can split it on two, basalt, which is great, but not planted. And andesite, which is medium and planted. Then you can go to schist, which is great, but not planted. And then you can move to granite, which is super great, and started to be planted. So the granite started really to be planted in the 90s. So what we realize now is that uh, if you look, if you look in a, with a good culture side, the best wines from till today are ninety percent from granite. So there are these possible vineyards from schist or basalt, but they don't have vines planted on them. Not yet, not yet, because it is uh, Chile, like many countries, is very centralist. So. Uh, and geology is not centralist. Geology can be everywhere. <laughs> so you're saying that most of the money and power and culture is around Santiago. Absolutely. And the basalt and the schist is very far away from Santiago. So that means that we need local people from in those places, regions. Yeah, to, to do that. And in the past, in the let's say 50 years ago, there were local people. But they were doing it and they were very poor and they struggled and they, they stopped it to do it. So you can find so all vines there. But it's for regional people to do that. And it's a starting movement. You know, one of the most uh, successful wines that you find here in New York is Louis Antoine Luit. Louis Antoine Luit is... Oh, everyone loves it. It's yes. the only wine that people will carry uh, from Chile. From Chile, It's no? the only one. Okay. Antoine is making wine from granites, from all vines. There are plenty of all vines in granites in the south of Chile. But you need to be, uh, you know, strong enough to go to the south of Chile. Not because it's not beautiful, it's fantastic, but you are not in the economy center. And uh, today what happened is that other people is following what Louis Antoine and Marcel Lapierre are starting to do that. And um, so there is a market. There is five, six, seven guys like Louis Antoine today with similar quality, even better quality, maybe. But they need to find dis distribution. It's, again, it's the same problem. So 
It's not about Louis Antoine. Great work and great vision. But we have two thousand hectares of vines, which sounds so Carignan, uh, Malbec, Pais, whatever, in the same situation. So we need to start to not blend that with Cabernet Sauvignon to export like a Maipo wine. We need to really start to talk about the origin. And the reality is that for me, that's why I live in the south of Chile, the best origin is where the old vines are. Itata and Cauquenes and Bio Bio. And I bet they're probably not that expensive for what they no, are. Not at, at all. I mean, you know, the, the things that, for example, uh, one of my wines from the south is uh, Claude Fou Cauquenina. Cauquenina is a wine that here is uh, maybe $25. It's a blend from old vines, never irrigated, granite. And when I sell my wine at this price, I am having a good uh, money back, you know? So I can do that. And because Chile is still not cheap, especially if you go uh, far away from Santiago. So when I sell this kind of wine at 25, I am happy. And the market can be happy. So, so it's a good possibility for, for a lot of people. So you need to have the, the, you know, you need to be brave to, to do it in a different way, you know? And a lot of people in Chile don't like my speech because they think that I am criticizing who's yes. there already. And and it's not like that. I mean, I am from the south of Chile. I was born in Bio Bio. Uh, I am not from Santiago, and I'm protecting what is mine. That's the whole point. And at some point, it really sounds when I talk to you like what is lacking is the initiative. The potential's there. The vineyards are there. The potential yes. to plant the vineyards is there. Yes. It doesn't take a lot of money. No. It just takes someone to go down there. Absolutely. Cut it out, make it happen, and then it, sell it somewhere. It is. So like in Swarland, Sadi and Badenhorst and other guys started. In the south, uh, Luis started, Claude Fou uh, following, the Martino following. And now, little by little, you see that you can have uh, more and more. So we started. And we were, you know, Itata and and, Carina, and, Carina, and Cauquenes were places that were abandoned. So considered by the people from Santiago like the worst terroir in the world. But if you look now, the best rates from Chile comes from those wines. So people starting to, to think. And that is my biggest fear because I will be really, really uh frustrated if i see that people from santiago comes and destroy what is our history you know how would they destroy it they would plant cabernet on granite and try to make bordeaux yeah. off granite is yeah. that how they yeah. would do it or it's, malbec it's, or something that's the way no malbec malbec the first malbec planted in south america is in bio bio in, over granite so malbec is naturally there but if you go down and you plant cabernet merlot and you start to do this kind of uh, classical mix from whatever in the world, that means you are going to destroy the history. And you're probably going to pull out the vines that are there. Absolutely. To do that. So if, they are going, if people come and cut the old vines because they produce very, very small branch and 100 they're, grams. They're not on trellises. Yes, they're hard, not, to, hard to pick. and Not economically. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you hear that everywhere. Yeah. It's not it, economical. It's not economical. Yeah. So we are going to cut the old vines and we're going to plant Cabernet Sauvignon. So with this very productive clone, this super good rootstock, and we're going to make ten dollars wines. So it's a it's a big problem. One big big industry uh, company in Chile, you know, because the Senso is doing very well now. Oh, it is. Yes, because uh, the Martino, you know, uh, they just launched a ten dollars 
uh, bottle of Senso. So we are working hard to add value, and a big company is working really hard with a lot of money to destroy that. So it's kind of like the yellowtail problem. It is. It like, is. hey, we want to be known for high-end Shiraz, and then there's somebody making a cute thing for it's low price, and it undercuts you in the market. It's the same situation. And it's not because they are not good people. It's because their business is they to wanna, produce, yeah, they, wanna, they want to have money. Rationalize, make some money. Yes. They, they want to make money. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the good point is that to reach Itata, it's very difficult. You you can get very easily lost, you know. You need to have a good car because it's really in the end of the world. So it's very difficult for viticulturists and to go there really and, and, and come with big machines and cut everything. What about water? We don't have problem because in the south we strain. So it's, it's you know, in those places it's very European. The wines smell European, you don't irrigate, so it's it's like to be in Galicia. It's very similar to Galicia. It's it's quite the same history or it's it's much cooler than Swarland for sure because we, we what we produce there is around thirteen degree alcohol, thirteen point five natural. You don't need to add tartaric acid, you don't need to irrigate, you don't need to produce more because vines never will produce more. So it's natural and people is quite poor. So they, they don't have tractors. So they work with horse, not because it's a la mode. It's because it's the only way that they can do it. So it's organic already. And, and everything's organic, not because they want to be organic. It's because they don't have money to buy chemicals. So it's the perfect place. And, and little by little, get, people is, is getting it more and more. It's difficult because today all the one writers who go to Chile want, want to go there. And it's a big problem because the big company who used to pay the, the ticket from the wine writer don't want to let them go there. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a little fight today. It's, it's funny. It's a funny fight. If there's no vines on the schist, what's yes. on the schist in uh, Chile? Uh, today in the schist, you find nothing or you find pinus or eucalyptus. So and one hectare of schist is about $1,000. So it's nothing. And you don't need to irrigate. So, so the point is to find the way to buy that and to plant it. So some people are starting to look at that. And we as Claude Fou, or we are clearly trying to buy a piece of land and to, to, to plant it. And what about the basalt? What's on the basalt? Basalt is fantastic. Basalt, but basalt is mostly very near the volcans. So again, in the south of Chile, and you know, to you, you had to take the risk to go high in elevation, so you will get snow and you will get more frost problem maybe, and and we need to plant it. The the thing with basalt is that we need, I would say, more years than the schist to be good. So you need to be really patient to wait for twenty years. So you need older vines on basalt. You need medium older vines on basalt. You need medium older vines. I would say that on granites, my experience is for some cepage, you can have very good quality fast, like uh, Syrah. It's, uh, it certainly seems like it to me. It's, it, it seems like you can plant Syrah on granite and get nice freshness, it you, pops. Absolutely. I mean, at least at a young age, like in terms of the bottle is young. Absolutely. The wine is young. But you cannot do that with Carignan and you cannot do that with Grenache and you cannot do that with Senso. You need really, 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 because you know, those vines have a lot of vigor. They, 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 they produce a lot in the beginning. And to be good, you need to produce 500 grams, maximum one kilo. And to reach this point, you need to be old. It's not the same, you know, to, to a very vigorous vine to, who can easily produce three kilos. Then you got the viticulturist cutting, you know, two kilos and a half 
and they so they the will green say harvest, to you, the 500 grams. It's not the same. It's you are the vine is is producing three kilos, so you need to be in a natural way producing this kind this amount of 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 uh, this kind of cluster. So you need time to do that. But today is plenty of Carignan, Syria, Senso, and Malbec, or wherever in the south. So so it's uh, you can find very easily to buy grapes to produce your wines. But what about sand? I always heard about sand in Chile. Like that's why there was no phylloxera and stuff like that. Is the that... sand, you see, the sand is a part of the soil that uh, you get the coarse part of the soil and you can produce very good wines from the sand regarding which genetic is the sand. So the sand mm-hmm. coming from limestone mm-hmm. produce very good wines. Mm-hmm. The sand coming from granite produce very good wine. You won't produce sand from volcanic because volcanic go to clay and silt. Uh, you won't produce uh, sand from uh, limestone. So when the sand is you from... What's the last part? It won't produce it from what? From limestone. Okay. So limestone goes to silt and to calcareous, to carbonate uh, calcium. Did you say earlier it comes from granite and what else does it come from? Granite, you will go find uh, sand yeah. in a very easy way. Sure. Schist, you can find sand Schist, okay. in a very easy way. Even in basalt, you can find, you know, this basaltic. And you can find sand in limestone, but only if it's coming from the Andes mountain range, like in Mendoza, in Gualtaieri, where the sand gets the limestone by the river. If you got a river going down with huge amount of limestone, and then the limestone will be deposited in the sand. The limestone will be moving down in the soil, and you will have the mix between the sand and the limestone. But it's very unique because you need to have the rivers going down with the limestone. And we don't have that in Chile. We do have that so in the Uco Valley in some places. And they produce very good wines. This may be a dumb question from a guy who's not a geologist, you know, me. No problem. But at what point is it granite and what point is it sand from granite? Where does that dividing line, how do you tell uh, that it's, dividing line? It's, you know, it's... It's more a technical division. For me, in fact, when people talk about sand, sand from granite, the sand is just a size. You know, when you classify soil, it's like NBA. You will say the guard is going to be, you know, six uh, feet and 0.5. Then the top one will be 7.11. Okay, so it's a size problem. In the soil, it's the same. So the more thin part of the soil is clay. Then you go to silt, then you go to sand, then you go to gravels. That's the size classification. So when you are saying that there is sand in the granite, in fact, is uh, is uh, quartz. A sandy soil from granite is a super quartzic soil. I see. So in, that's why talk about sand, clay, and silt is not very interesting for me. Is for me, it's much more important the genetic. So if I know that I have a granite there. I know that in some places the granite will be having a lot of quartz that will be sandy because of the size granite. And I bet that means it's a bigger, fruitier wine. Uh, uh, mm, It will be tough, frontal. It will be medium fruity. It will be uh, very long wine. Then if you add, you can move two meters and then you will reach the clay side of the granite. And it's very simple. Every time that you get clay, you get round, you get soft. So if you don't want to be very, very mineral because you are afraid of, to be called rustic, then find more clay in the granite. And then there is a point when clay goes too high 
and you are losing minerality. You know, it's, I was talking with somebody today. It's, you know, the classical situation between Musigny and Clovujo. Musigny, more limestone, Clovujo, a little more clay. So Clovujo is super famous because of the history, but more easy because it's more round, more international maybe. And the other place is the clay. You have the same clay, but the soil is very shallow. So you have the proportion of the limestone is higher. So you get this kind of sharp, elegant, mineral, finesse, and whatever. So it's, 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 you can build that, you can work, you can blend that. You can have a component in a tank with the, the granitic clay soil, and you can have a component with the sandy, quartzic, granitic soil, and you can have a component with the quartzic, iron, granitic soil. Uh, that would be three, three very different wines for the same syrup, for example. And then you blend that because you say, okay, I want that my wine for this price. I want to be more easy to drink. I want to be by the glass in a restaurant, for example. So you add more clay and the, the syrup will be a little more round, more fruity. Clay is always related with fruit. Very easy. You know, it's clay produce easy wine to drink, soft and fruity. But what about topsoil? You know, sometimes I feel like, hey, underneath there is limestone, but the topsoil might be a meter, it might be three meters, it might be 30 meters. Yes. What's the difference there? It is very important. It's very important because in general, you know, a great terroir for this kind of mineral wines is a blend between, you know, the bones, so the rock, and the fat part. Uh, and the fat part is the fertility that is bring by the soil, not by the rock. So, for example, if you have a very, very classical limestone hard in Kaor, and the topsoil is 20 centimeters, the wine is going to be very difficult to, to drink because it's going to, to be too much mineral. Because it's right in the rock. Yes, right in the rock. And then that means that you need to find more soil to have a better fertility and to have more, you know, it's like when you're going to eat uh, meat, you need to have a little of the fat part because it's the savory part. So it's always the problem is that you need to find a balance between the soil and the fertility of the soil and the rock. And this balance will define the typicity on your wine. And then is what you like to produce. Some guys will prefer to produce wines in a more deeper soil and then reach the rock. Other guys will be more shallow and then the rock. So that's my, my job as a consultant, to know, understand what they want to do and to find where is this situation. Because if you mix in the tank both situations, you can have, you know, the green part of the rustic part. It's better to separate, vinify in a separate way, because winemaking cannot be the same. And then you blend. So it's better to separate and blend than to blend in the field blend. Field blends, uh, when geology change, infertility can be complicated. So if I had a vineyard, say in Coor, Yes. And I had 20 centimeters of topsoil. Yes. Would that be, how long would that be for? A mile, a meter, a half a meter? To change? 30 miles. Yeah, I mean, in which, uh, I mean, how uniform is that generally? Uh, no, it's, no, it's very not uniform. You can move two vines and you can move from 20 centimeters to one meter. That means that in two vines, you change completely. But of course, you cannot harvest vine per vine. That means that you need to have an, an idea about the distribution of the topsoil and the rocks fractures in your vineyard. So you say, okay, one wine will be made from this kind of gravels and 
everything that is between zero centimeter of topsoil to 40 centimeters. And then you fill that with one tank. That will be harvested early because the soil is shallow. Then second, you go from 40 to 90. And then third, you go from 90 to 1.4 meters. And then last, you go uh, deeper than 1.4. What for me is not interesting anymore. It's too much soil and the rock is really very deep. So you will create three wines. And then you will decide if you make a single vineyard or you blend it. And again, we cannot say that for one cepage is better the first soil than the second one. That will change completely on the nature. So some, some grapes prefer shallow. Syrah, for example, really likes to have a shallow soil. Carignan, more shallow. Cabernet Sauvignon, not so shallow. Cabernet Franc, not shallow at all. Merlot, not shallow at all. But you learn that little by little, you know. And, and then if somebody hires me for work on Cabernet Franc, I know I should be so stupid to go straight to a very shallow soil because the wine would be green. You don't get the energy to get ripe. It's the same for Carmenere in Chile. When the soil is very stony and very shallow, you get green because it's a long cycle ripening. That means that you need energy. You need to eat something. And the eat is in the soil part. So the best Carmenere in Chile is at least 1.20 centimeters, one meter and 20 centimeters deep, and then you reach the rock. If I do that with a Carignan, it will be a disaster. But I bet that those types of variation in topsoil aren't in perfect squares and rectangles in terms of picking. I bet they're more... It is, it's, you know, the distribution of uh, heterogeneity in the vineyard is never square. It's always following fractures and lines that would make it for harvest more difficult. So my work is to try to find a form to be harvested that can be done. So, for example, we cannot harvest a star form. It would be impossible. But we can really harvest a rectangle, even a triangle, that can separate on two, two kinds of sorts. Of course, maybe 5% or 10% of this triangle will have, for example, the shallow soil, what I don't want to. But I need to do it. You know, what at the end, a guy who worked like me trying to do burgundy everywhere in the world, you know, goes, it's a scale problem. And, and for me, my scale, my favorite scale uh, size is 3,000 kilos. That is my, that will be for me, it's, it's a tank. If we go up, some clients say to me, you know, for me, two hectares or 10,000 kilos is my size. Another bigger client would say, no, for me, you know, 20,000 kilos is my size. And the higher, the high quality they produce is, the more micro you need to work. That's, that's the key point. So we talked about how clay can be with something else, how yes. clay can be with limestone. Are there examples of, say, schist being with something else? Like, are there other samples where they're actually often codependent, where one is actually next to another type of soil? Yeah, of course. It's schist is the same because schist, when you find a schist, uh, I don't know, in Priorat or wherever, you can move very easy to clay. So that means that you can have very high vigor on the vines because the schist uh, has been transformed little by little to silt and clay. And then you move two meters or three and you get, you reach the rock again. So the vigor is much lower. And then you go up and the rock is very hard to broke. So you don't get the vigor that you want and you get dry tannins. 
So, so for schist is also very dramatic. So f- the, the most easy soil to work for me is gravels because you can handle that. Granite, schist, and limestone is you need to be accurate. You need precision on on your on your work. Is and that why we see larger estates in Bordeaux? Physically larger producers. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, I won't say that it's easy to work in Bordeaux. It's just easier. But it's easier or less difficult if you want to do that. And for me in Chile, it's the same. When I work uh, with gravels, I know that I need to work really in a deep way, but it's much more easy for me. Uh, Gravels allow to make mistakes. Schist, granite and limestone, no. It's yes or no. That's that's the point. So sometimes it's very difficult for me to explain that to an owner. Saying that, ah, you know, the owner would say, you know, my terroir is, is complex. But yes, but you are planting on granite. You should be very proud and very happy to be on granite. But you cannot work your property like you used to work your gravel property. It's the same problem in Mendoza. The Malbec and gravels go so well, but at the same time, it's very easy. That's why there's so many guys producing very good Malbec. But if you want to reach another level of complexity, you need to change your mentality from Malbec and you need to go to a higher mentality in terms of precision and difficulty. So that's why it's difficult to find you know, good Cabernet Sauvignon in Malbec. It's not because the terroir is not good. It's that if your viticulture is your viticulture Malbec in your head for the Cabernet, you will never reach a good Cabernet. Some things are more difficult than others. Malbec and Syrah are, we used to call that plastic grapes, because when you do wrong, you do well. And that's why you find so many good Syrah in the world, for at least for the entry level, you know, because the tannins, it's very difficult to have a green Syrah, for example. It's almost impossible to find a green Malbec. It's very difficult. Sometimes reductive, though. Sometimes, some, yes, but if you pay attention on that and you know that you are working on Syrah and you need to pay attention to your way making and you're clean enough, you will, be, you will avoid the problem of reduction. But uh, you know that. I mean, everybody knows that Syrah can be reductive. So you, you need to pay attention. The problem is that some guys don't pay attention. It's like Chardonnay and Batonnage, you know. Uh, for many years, people were saying, yeah, yeah, to be very good like Bernie, you need to make Batonnage. And so the guys were every day doing batonage like crazy, and they were killing the wine. So it's not a protocol. It's batonage for some terroir can be very good when the wine is reductive. So if it's alkaline soils and you have reductive wine, it's good to give it a swirl. Yes, but not too much. It's just to move the leaves a little, you know. But when you are big, let's say a big company that produces Chardonnay, what, they, what will happen? The winemaker never will do batonnage because he's very busy doing whatever. So he will ask to somebody to help and will say, you know, I have 1,000 barrels. Can you make batonnage every day? So it's like a protocol. And wine, there's a big difference between industrial wine and with protocols and, you know, small, humble, honest wines. That's a I would classify wines on two, you know, industrial and, and very humble guy. If the guy is not rich, the wine will be a very good wine. What about roots? You know, you have, you talked about different grape varieties. Yes. If, if a different grape variety is on a different soil, yes. does its roots behave differently? Say I had Syrah on yes. those four things, basalt, I, 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 limestone. Absolutely. 
roots are, go are going to grow. Let's say we're not talking about rootstock. We're talking about natural roots. Roots are going to grow where they found air. So they are going to follow fractures. They're going to follow porosity. And roots don't want to grow when they found problems. For example, if the topsoil is very sandy and then you go to clay, the, the water from the rain or from the irrigation will be moving very fast in the sun. And then in the clay, the water will stop. And that will form a one millimeter water table. And roots don't want to get down. So the roots are going to look for air and go up. This classical problem. You got superficial roots. That means that your terroir, the value is zero. And uh, so when you got this kind of rocks, the roots are going to follow the fractures. And you know that schist and limestone get these uh, horizontal fractures, like sedimentary fractures. So roots are going to go down, but in an horizontal way, like this, then escalier, and this, like escalier. Like a staircase. Like, yes. So many times people say, you know, my roots go down seven meters. It's very romantic. It's like my wine is better because I go down eight meters. It's very difficult to know that first almost impossible, but you need to find a machine to make an eight-meter soil pit. And second, uh, in, in schist and limestone, it's almost impossible. It's very, it's very rare to find that. On the other hand, granite, the fracture is very vertical. So you can very easily reach four or five meters of roots. So, and it's super important for the, for the growing of the vines because when the roots are going really down, you're really avoiding the upper part, which is very sunny. You get the sun, you get dry very easily. So you can get, you can get the water very down in the, in the system. When the roots are more superficial, even in the rock, rocky part, you get, the, you get the, 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 the sun that will heat the soil, so you can get the water evaporated very fast. So it can be a problem. And when the roots are very superficial, Every time that you get rain, you get all the water. So you get the fertility from the water. So it's true you have, the, you have a form in the roots. Then there is another point that because of the phylloxera, you plant with rootstock. And rootstock comes from different places in the United States. So classical rootstock from the desert, from Arizona, are very good for dry areas. And the system, the root system is very very good going down, 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 down to find water very deep. So this place in Arizona provides one family of rootstock. Another place is like in the south of New York, more humid, provide another form of the roots because you have the humidity and the rain. So when you're going to plant something, you need to keep that in mind because if you are very stony and you want to go to the mineral site, you need to plant a rootstock that really will be following the fractures down. So you need to have a good selection of your rootstock. And if you do the opposite, you will have a big problem because you are buying expensive as stony soil and then you're putting superficial roots. So it will be very stupid. The problem is that to know that is very difficult because everything that is, has been wrote about the rootstock is in the French book. And French book are made especially for French system, mostly limestone. So what do very well in France cannot really do very well, for example, in Sonoma. So we, ha we have the French experience and we are building our books in here in Sonoma or in Chile 
but for that we need 30, 40 years. So it's a long, long observation time. You need to, to really avoid the French book saying that what happened in France will happen in my volcanic soil. So we are going to make many, many mistakes doing that. And what about irrigation? Have you found that different types of soil handle irrigation differently? Uh, absolutely. I mean, in, you know, maybe because my French formation, I really don't like uh, irrigation. Many times I was asking myself if I want, I was not so, so close mind about this topic, like Frenchy, I'm not French. But uh, uh, I'll say that what I really understand is, understood is when you are planted in this kind of geology system, because of the fractures of the rock, every time that you get water down from rain or from a very long irrigation, you are fooling your, 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 how do you say, the frigo in the, in the kitchen. When you, when the you, freezer? The freezer. Like the refrigerator? Yes. yes. You're fooling with water the refrigerator. So that means that the roots, especially the roots that are down, are going to have water when they want to take the water. And in the opposite, when we are irrigating and we are, we are irrigating uh, soils without rocks, we need to irrigate often. So it's our decision when to irrigate. It's a very egocentric decision. Because I, the viticulturist, I'm going to look at the vine. The vine cannot talk to me. So the vine is going to show a symptom to me. And I will interpret it that ah, this symptom is they need water. And it's very difficult to interpret that. It very, so I would say that 90% of the time that we're going to irrigate, we really don't know what we are doing. And if we irrigate often, we, what we're doing is giving water to the upper part, what I call the McDonald's size. So we're giving water to the superficial roots. So we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger from water. And we don't want that. So for me, if I'm going to irrigate, what I do for my wines in some places, I try to irrigate one or two times in the year. But when I irrigate, I give a lot. It's like a super rain. That's, that's the key point for me. And then every time that I look at the vine and say, I need to irrigate, I go back home. I look to a movie and I don't irrigate. I go do whatever, but I try to not irrigate. Hopefully many of my wines are in the south, so I don't have the problem. What about vine disease? Do you see different kinds of vine diseases on different soils? Uh, you, vine diseases are very related with stress, hydric stress. So again, the problem of the water. So, and vine diseases are mainly f uh, related with, you know, fungus problem or virus problem. The thing is that the most stress you have, you will have very easily the virus problem or, or whatever. It's like, you know, a human being. If you are depressed, you can be very easily healed because uh, you, are, you're, you, are the, you don't have energy. For the vine, is the same. When a vine is under the estrus system, she can be dying because of nothing, you know, nematodes in the soil. And in a good condition, the nematodes won't be a problem. So it's always related with uh, the stress of the, of, of the vine. So, so that's why I hear a lot about like nematodes in Burgundy, but not maybe in some other places. Nematodes is a global problem. So we have nematodes all around the world. And, and nematodes, uh, when the soil is shallow and rocky, we don't have the fertility, uh, fertility enough to, because nematodes are eating the roots. So it's a, it's a balance between roots are growing and nematodes are eating. If the balance is positive, I mean, you grow faster than the nematodes are eating, so you don't have a problem. But if you're growing, it's 
very slow and the nematodes are eating because they're too much, then the vines are going to stress. And when you stress, you get cold because you're, you're not happy as a vine. So we have the same problem with nematodes in Italy, in, in Burgundy, in Chile, in Mendoza. It's the same situation. But it's a topsoil issue. In other words, if there's less topsoil, the nematodes are more of a problem because there's less if growth. You, if you have less fertility, nematodes can be more aggressive. So what is a problem? Because less fertility is a better terroir. But uh, uh, today, some rootstock are doing better with, with, with nematodes. But you need to, the first thing that I ask for a client is soil analysis on nematodes. Because if I have nematodes, I know that I will need to use rootstock. Not because the rootstock is not going to be eaten by the nematode. It's because the rootstock is going to produce many, many roots faster than the nematodes. Th that, oh, that's, I see. That's, that's the way. And this because kind, you actually live in a place where you don't have to graft. Like you could go to a place and do ungrafted. Uh, yes, but in, in, in Chile we don't graft, but we, are, we learn in the hard way because it's expensive to plant one, one, to plant one hectare today is around $40,000 per hectare. So 10 hectares for 100 and 100 for million dollars. So we learn that we don't have phylloxera, but we do have nematodes. And we learn in the hard way that nematodes in Chile can be a very, very big problem because half of our vineyards are volcanic and volcanic go to silt and clay and clay means stress. So like Napa is the same situation our terroir in the Andes mountain range were born in the stress system. So now that we know that, we are planted with rootstock. I see. To avoid the nematodes problem. So today, if it is volcanic, I would say immediately to my client, rootstock is more expensive, but your vines will live longer. Uh, there is a paper made in Napa that vines are dying at 12 years yeah going up to it seems 15. like they do they're on a 20-year cycle in Napa. it's terrible it's crazy but it's it, crazy it's crazy when you look at them too because the vigor is so much that they look thicker yes if you compare it to like a french vine absolutely you look at it and you're like what's that 40 years old and he's like no it's 15. it is because the terroir is a difficult terroir in terms of porosity you don't get air that means that you don't get thin roots that mean that you get stress and all the problems that stress brings to the to the vines but uh, Chile is the same, we have the same, you know, many, many of my work today is to design new vineyards in Chile because vineyards that were planted in the 90s are dying. Oh, wow. And, and the problem is that you don't die in one year. It's a very slow dying. But it's clearly you start with seven or eight years old, so very young vines. And you start to have a problems with the tannins in the wines. You go to unbalanced tannins to say, why? Well, maybe it's the year. So next year will be better. And next year, uh, you have more problem. And then when you reach 10 years, you look at the soils and you see that you don't have roots. Where are the roots? Uh, nematodes. Okay. So, so we have the same problem. And then when you don't have roots, you get stress. And when you get stress, the most easy way to avoid stress in the viticulture's mind is uh, water. water. So you irrigate. Right. But you are volcanic clay. So when you irrigate, you are not giving water to the soil. You are drawing the roots. So the few roots that you have, they get draw because too much water. So the guy will think, I need to irrigate more. So he will draw in more roots. Then he'll say, I need to bring cocaine, nitrogen. 
a nitrogen is the end, the, 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 the end for a vine. So water, nitrogen, and ciao. And one thing that is very, very, that's opened my mind in Chile is that I would say 99% of the old vines in Chile are all planted in granites. So I asked to many of my friends, show me all vines in Chile in volcanic. You won't find that. That's interesting because, you know, we think about Sicily and like Mount but, Etna and 100-year-old yes, vines. Yes, but Sicily is different because it's the basalt. It's a mix between, you know, uh, this kind of dark sand from basalt and the fractures from the basalt. But basalt is not about clay. That's why basalt for me is a very special volcanic uh, place and really don't fix really very well in the volcanic idea that I got in, in my mind. It's so, like you said, basalt's kind of a wild card. You don't basalt know. Basalt is fantastic. Basalt is great. But, but you need to have air in the basalt. And because you get sand in the basalt and silt, you get air in the basalt. So the, the, the alteration of the rock goes more to this family of sandy silty and less to the clay silty. That's why it's changed completely the, the, the system. If you were to look at family groups of soil type globally, are there certain groups? Like, do things group up in your mind? Is, you know, at a macro level, is Burgundy like Rioja Alta? Or yes. What's you, that you, like? You, if you look at family, for me, you know, my, my, my connection, I'm still young, you know, to, to really be sure on that, but maybe in 10 years I will be. But there is a connection on limestone between Barolo, uh, some place in Argentina and Gigondas. I don't know why, but something is related there. The tannins or something. In the tannins, in the tannins. Then uh, Burgundy is very unique, in, in my opinion. There is, of course, a relation between uh, Jura and Burgundy, but you need more, better weather in Jura, more, more heat. With the global warming, Jura can be better and better and better. In and the maybe that's why we've been paying more and more attention. Uh, absolutely. Then there is a clear connection in the granites. I mean, the granites in, in, in everywhere, the granites for me is, you got this fantastic minerality. Uh, so maybe granite is a little one step more simple than limestone. And I got the same idea from schist. I mean, if I have to rank for me. You mean in terms of different varieties of yes. the same thing? There's yes. less types of granite than there are types of limestone. Absolutely. And then, and and for me, you know, the 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 cepage or the variety is less important than the signature of the minerality. I mean, for me, it's it's very very funny to make a blind test testing with friends from many limestone places with different cepage and find the connection. This is more funny than have the same taste with the same variety. Let's say Pinot Noir. New Zealand, Sonoma, da, 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 da. because that will be so different. By funny, you mean unexpected. Unexpected, yes, yeah. yes. And in general, people don't do that. People would say, okay, this is a Pinot Noir from New Zealand, this is a Pinot Noir, blah, 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 blah. so very different situations. So you see big difference in the tannins completely. But if you do it by soil, you will see that there is a dark line. They will recognize between them the wines. It's like we are family. We have the same signature. Maybe the equalization of the signature is different. Maybe the balance in the, in the, in the acidity is different. But we are brothers. That, that's for me, is, is very important. I, I really enjoy at home doing this kind of uh, tasting by, by, you know, today we want to, to bring uh, schist. 
So you can New Zealand cheese, Pinot Noir, then you bring a blend from Priorat, you bring this kind of Gorvia from Galicia or Adodo. In the same way that we might pick Grenache from all over the world and say, hey, let's do a Grenache tasting. Yes. What you're saying is, hey, you know what I like to do is do a schist tasting. Yes. Different varieties, different places in the world. Find, Absolutely. Find the schist. Absolutely. And you can. And you, you can, can do that. You can. And when you do that, you need to select good wines because if you select wines that are very winemaker, you can erase this, this connection. So less manipulated yes. is what you mean by good Absolutely. wine. Absolutely. It's difficult because how do you know that this manipulated? Winemakers will never say that my wine is manipulated. So you don't get the real information. You need to know the guy really well to know that the, this guy is not really manipulating the wine. You need to go to the winery, look at what they have and what they don't have. Absolutely. And then make a, de- a decision that, from the there. That's the difficult <laughs> part of a buyer. Because it's very easy. I'm going to buy Burgundy, but the real work is to really know Burgundy, to walk the Echezeau and not that the Echezeau has different situation. One part is terrible because you get the water in the Echezeau. And so you need to know the place very well. And for me, it's very simple. Bring a paper, a pencil, and ask the winemaker, can your, you draw me your vineyard? And they collapse. They, it's difficult because you need to really work and walk and walk the vineyard and look and look. One time I was, I was many years ago, I was with a very famous uh, winemaker in front, you know, of a beautiful vineyard in the mountain. And I asked the winemaker, what do you see? So the guy look at me and say, what do you mean about that? Very simple. What do you see? So he said to me, no, it's a tricky question. No, guy, I want to know what do you see? So the guy get nervous. Super simple question. And he looked at me nervous and said, uh, a vineyard. Perfect. What else do you see? We spent like 10 minutes discussing about that. The guy never told me about colors and forms. And he's a winemaker. He should be an artist. And how can you buy a wine from a guy who don't see colors in the soil and don't see forms? Like this slope is concave or convex, you know? Many, many of the wines that you want to buy for your cellar come from uh, convex forms because the rock is more exposed, so it's more mineral. When the, when the vineyard is more concave, you get more water in the vineyard, so the water destroys the rock, so you get more clay. And you get more fruit. And more fertile and whatever. So it's about observation, it's about time. And when you get, when you go into this kind of situation, you will be making better wines for, for sure. That brings, uh, you know, when you're old, you get to, to know that, then you die. <laughs> That's the main part. Pedro Parra is looking to make better wines through a look at the soil. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Soil specialist Pedro Parra. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. 
That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.